This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Ghanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Well, Jamal, as we're on weeks after the attack on uh, Palestinian civilians in Gaza and the West Bank, actually, Palestinians worldwide continue to feel unsafe and under attack, whether it's in Sheikh Jarrah, where Palestinians continue to be, you know, attempted to be ethnically cleansed by Israeli settlers, or the catastrophic consequences in Gaza for Palestinians. Palestinians are safe nowhere in the world, Jamal, including here in the United States, because, you know, attacks on our First Amendment rights, attacks on free speech, attacks on the ability to criticize the apartheid regime of Israel, the Hasbro machine is really ramping up, Jamal, and uh, Arab Talk and some of your posts on Facebook are at the center of it right now. You're absolutely right, Jess, and this is the time to reclaim the narrative that Facebook and other uh, social media giants are trying to, to hijack, but also to, to really recapture the narrative from the U.S. government when you have a Secretary of State exactly. uh, who basically and unequivocally says all the time that Israel has the right to defend itself and, and not mourning the, the death of... Uh, more than 60 Palestinian children. I mean, this is this is the issue and trying to say, well, we're trying to be fair and balanced, but we'll talk about actually a video of his first, uh, which is really important. The very first interview is with uh, Gillian York, the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Director for International Freedom of Expression. And then there is a campaign, just which is a campaign uh, that's uh, was launched by multiple uh, organizations, rights organizations. One of them is uh, EFF to tell Facebook stop silencing Palestine. So let's uh, listen to Jill in York. Rights groups are demanding answers from Facebook after multiple reports that the social media giant has censored Palestinian content on its platforms especially during the recent attacks on Gaza and occupied Jerusalem. The letters, uh, signatories, including Hamle, Adala, Council on American uh, Islamic Relations, and Jewish Voice for Peace, demanded that Facebook explain how it applies its policies, provide data on all removals, and allow independent researchers to review the removals. Joining us from Berlin to discuss this and more, Gillian York, Electronic Frontier Foundation Director for International Freedom of Expression. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Gillian. Thank you for having me. Have you received uh, similar complaints and what are your findings? What is EFF doing about this? Yes, absolutely. Um, so EFF has been working with Hamla, with uh, Jewish Voice for Peace, with a variety of other organizations around the region um, and elsewhere in the world to try to track these issues, um, to hear from users about what they're experiencing and to talk to the companies. Um, so I've been part of several meetings with Facebook um, that included a number of those groups um, and, and a number of Palestinians. And what we're seeing is really kind of a, a range of things occurring. On the one hand, you have demands from the Israeli government to take down certain types of, of speech, and these are mostly coming from the cyber unit. Um, at the same time, you also have these companies making mistakes of their own accord, and often this is because really of automation and a lack of understanding of local context. 
So uh, how much of it is really automation? Because we've seen this like a real uptick and uh, I should mention that I've been, uh, like a lot of my content has, has been removed or I've been issued a warning and it has nothing to do with violating any of the rules or, uh, and then just like, I, I feel like there is no person behind that notice that we, that people like myself and others receive. Yeah, it's true. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of companies had to send workers home for good reason. They they couldn't work um, from their their homes uh, on these sensitive content moderation issues. And yet at the same time, as states have opened up and as, as people are going back to work, um, a lot of these companies have failed to put back in place the, the resources needed to, to moderate content across the world. Um, and so, you know, automation is itself troublesome in a number of ways, but it's the inputs um, to the automation made by humans that are particularly troublesome. So one of the examples that we saw uh, a couple weeks back was um, where Instagram uh, restricted access to Arabic language posts that included hashtags that mentioned Alexa. Um, and that was because of the fact that um, Alexa Martyrs Brigade is on the U.S. Uh, State Department's list of terrorist organizations, which Facebook removes, that Facebook and Instagram remove. Um, and so that was really just a, a, a bad input um, that conflated the name of one of the most important holy sites um, in Islam with the name of a, you know, a group that the, the company does not allow on their platform. So uh, I know you've uh, mentioned uh, earlier that uh, EFF is uh, planning to, to issue, uh, I guess, a, uh, a statement on, on this. Can you share with us uh, at least uh, some of your asks? Absolutely. Yeah. So we've worked with, um, uh, and, and really it's, this is not an EFF led campaign. It's a coalition that EFF is a part of. Um, and again, that includes a number of groups throughout the region. And what we're asking is for a few things. Uh, on the one hand, we want um, Facebook to conduct a full and independent public audit audit of their content moderation policies with respect to Palestine and commit to co-design. So this is really similar to the other asks that we've seen previously. Um, we also want them to be transparent about the requests that they receive from governments um, and especially from the Israeli cyber unit. And this includes not just the, the official requests that they receive, but also what, what's kind of called voluntary uh, requests. And this is when governments use existing user channels to report speech. Um, this is a really problematic practice that, that companies are not transparent transparent about. Um, and of course, we also want to see more transparency around automation, around how dangerous organizations are classified under Facebook's policy. So if they're using the State Department's list as their guiding list, then they need to be public about that because users can't comply with rules that they're not even aware of. And lastly, we want to make sure that there's a co-design process with civil society to improve upon these processes and policies. So uh, why is Facebook obligated to listen to Israel's cyber unit? Uh, I mean, is this... Uh Usual? I mean, this is, is this a common practice? It's an increasingly common practice. So right now we're seeing a lot of companies kind of torn between, um, you know, various government regulations around the world. Um, Israel is one of the kind of early governments to buy into this, to try to form a relationship with Facebook, but it's not by any means the only one. Um, the German government, for example, actually made a regulation called the Network Enforcement Act that requires companies to take down certain types of illegal speech within 24 hours, uh, I think 24 hours or maybe a little bit more. Um, but we're also seeing this come from India, from Mauritius, from Turkey, from all over the world, um, these kinds of relationships where 
governments are trying to force these companies' hand to to you know remove speech at their request or to to you know require a local office. Um, but I think it's really important to note that companies always have a choice in where they put their offices and put their employees. Um, and you know, just like five six years ago when these companies were starting to open offices in Dubai, and we warned them about the country's human rights record, um, so too did people warn these companies about Israel and its human rights record. Yeah, but it seems, I mean, uh, that they're taking more the side of governments rather than the average person. I mean, the question is, what can the average person uh, do to fight this monopoly and protect his or her uh, freedom of expression? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they are choosing governments. And part of the reason why they're choosing them is that they can't profit if they get blocked by a government. Um, if Facebook you know, doesn't comply with Israel or doesn't comply with India, then those governments might block Facebook.com. And then, you know, <laughs> obviously, the company's uh, interest, their primary motivator is profit. Um, so what the average person can do is, I mean, you know, it, obviously, it differs from where you are. I think it's really important that people get involved um, when they're living in a democracy in um, opposing the bad bills that are coming out of a variety of places, including the US and the European Union. Um, but obviously, that's not a process that everyone has the ability or right to engage in. Um, and so there's also this, you know, kind of opportunity to engage with the companies and to push them on these things individually, because ultimately they do hold a lot of the power here. And even if they do get blocked, as we saw happen with uh, Twitter in Nigeria this past week, people often find a way around that censorship. Um, and so I think it's really important that we kind of almost treat these companies, as troubling as this sounds, almost treat them like governments um, in the way that we advocate toward them. Well, well, I mean, this is exactly what I was going to ask you, because Facebook and other uh, platforms hide behind the terms of service. And a lot of people don't understand what are these terms of service. Sounds, sounds to me like me going to a grocery store and then they have a sign saying no shoes, no, no shirt, no service, right? But they are acting like a government. I mean, they're bigger than a government. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just want to know they're bigger than any government, really. So I just want to know, I mean, with your conversations with them, are they listening? Are they listening to organizations like yours and, and others that there is an inherently problem with their basically censorship uh, ideas? Yeah, I mean, it's true. They're bigger than any government um, and they have, you know, as much power over our speech as a number of governments do. Right. Um, so I would say, you know, they do take calls with us. I, I don't always feel like they're listening. And I'm going to be really frank about this. Over the years, you know, I've had numerous conversations with people at Facebook in particular, but also plenty of other companies. Uh, but since this campaign's focused on Facebook, I'll, I'll say this. Um, I feel like there's, you know, kind of an internal struggle there where you do have great people who take these calls and talk to us, but ultimately the power is coming from the executives and the board, um, and they're the ones who are also set to profit the most off of these decisions. And so, you know, when Facebook hires it, Nick Clegg, a former um, uh, politician from the UK, you can see, you know, what its motivation and what its priorities are. Um, and so I think it's really important that these companies change course quickly. Yeah, and I, I don't know if, if they're going to do that uh, because now you said something very important which people don't discuss, which is the the dollar sign, which is the profit. And this reminds me actually of the question of how the behavior of American media, like for example, I used to, uh, when I used to talk to students and, and, and we'll, I'll, I'll just make the argument that, uh, you know, uh, the news is very sanitized in the United States because... Uh, 
you know, Cheerios does not wanna want you to choke on 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 your cereal as you're watching the blood and gore. When uh, of course you've you've uh, traveled all over the world. I mean, these images are shown in the Middle East and other places. So the role of uh, you know advertising plays a big part. So now, what you're saying is it's actually bigger than this. That Facebook, they're not really worried about not receiving ads from a particular company because uh, they don't like what they see on their platform. But you're saying that an entire country can just block Facebook and then they won't get any re revenues or, or, or uh, you know, or, or viewership or anything in that country. Yeah, I mean, we've already seen, you know, a number of advertiser boycotts happen around um, around Trump and around hate speech in the U.S. And these were partially effective, but I wouldn't say, you know, I think it's really hard to get the world's advertisers on board to something like that. And I think there's always someone else who's willing to do that um, when an advertiser pulls out. And so really, I see these companies as, as much more caught between governments and between these various regulations. Um, and so it is a really difficult struggle, but this is why I think that it's so important that we, we don't just write off these platforms. I mean, yes, there's all sorts of things we need to build. We need to build alternative platforms. We need to build other governance models. I mean, all of this. But at the same time, you know, I've always taken the realistic approach that people are going to use Facebook, whether we say to boycott it or not, whether we like it or not. Um, and so it's really important to improve upon that space. Um, and that's why, you know, I think just continuing to put pressure on these companies because they do respond to public pressure. We've seen this time and time again with various policies um, from their real names policy to some their policies around gender. Um, and now with the oversight board, we're seeing, um, you know, Facebook change some of its policies in response to their decisions. So it, that kind of pressure can work. Um, but I think we have to be really diligent about it. And there is an internal, I think I've seen a, a you know, an internal memo or a campaign within Facebook that employees basically uh, have uh, written about it that this is uh, th that they weren't happy with this uh, with this policy. So uh, do you expect uh, whatever you're going to put out soon that Facebook is going to actually pay attention? Is this going to be just like opening a, a conversation with them, or are they going to have a response or totally ignore it? Well, um, you know, so we've already opened a conversation with them and that hasn't been going so well. And that's why we chose to take this tactic. Um, but, you know, I think that the, the thing is a campaign like this with the signatories that we have, um, I wish I could name them, but I don't know when this is going up. Um, but with the signatories that we have, I think that, you know, this is the kind of pressure that works. And we've seen it work before. In 2018, um, we were pushing for Facebook to implement an appeals policy, which they did not have fully at the time. We got more than 100 organizations from a variety of different countries around the world to sign on. And Facebook responded publicly. Um, and I don't recall them doing that in, in that kind of fashion before. Um, so I do think that we're seeing a sea change. And I think that they they're being forced to be responsive to civil society. Um, but, you know, it takes a lot of work on our part. <laughs> so the more people involved, the better. So you, what, 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 what's your advice to people who are really getting frustrated? I mean, what, what course of action can they do? Can they reach out to these different organizations, your organization, right? Facebook, I mean, sometimes like you hit, you want to hit your head uh, against the wall because uh, it's not like Facebook is like a, a small company or you pick up your phone and talk to someone, right? Exactly. Um, well, so for this campaign, they can go to stopsilencingpalestine.com. Uh, 
com, I think. Um, in general, yeah, reach out to the various organizations working on this. Um, we can all use some help. Um, I know, you know, reaching Facebook itself can be kind of difficult if you're an ordinary person, but jumping on one of these campaigns and helping us out is a great way to do that. Um, but I think also, you know, don't forget your legislators. Um, and, you know, don't forget that there are alternatives out there. We don't have to give Facebook all of our data. We can choose to vote with our feet. Um, and, you know, as, as much as I have resisted that in the past on the grounds that, these are the these are the places where the conversation is happening. Um, the more we see Facebook kind of resist change, the more I think it's time for us to look at other places on, online and, and create other spaces. Gillian York, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Always wonderful. Thank you. That's the voice in the face of Gillian York, the international director for the EFF. And Jamal, I have to say, very compelling, very you know, excellent discussion, and she's spot on. And, you know, the thing that I have concerns about is the power that Facebook and other social media have to work in concert with government narratives to silence free speech, especially the free speech of people who happen to be critical of the apartheid regime of Israel, which continues to engage in a pattern and a practice of ethnic cleansing and and war crimes. And if anybody, including congressmen and women, we've seen attacks on Ilhan Omar again, you know, for bringing up the possibility of investigating Israel for war crimes, we see Facebook, which is a social media site, being used, you know, by the Israeli government, it seems, and also by the U.S. government to silence pro-Palestine activists. This is incredibly important. It's not getting any mention in the mainstream media, and I'm very concerned about it. Yeah, it's very, very disturbing, but there is, again, this is the, this campaign is very important, and actually there are multiple campaigns. There is another campaign also calling on journalists uh, to uh, reframe the Hasbara, but I call them Hasbara talking points and Hasbara Hasbara words, like when they're referring to the West Bank as disputed territory, or uh, they're, when they're talking about Sheikh Jarrah, they're talking about it as if it's a real estate t- a transaction rather than the ethnic cleansing of uh, uh, families from uh, Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan, and and they're they're avoiding to talk about the occupation, they're That's avoiding right. to talk about apartheid. So there is also another campaign that uh, journalists have been signing, and and surprisingly, many of them from uh, well-known organizations. Of course, some uh, signed anonymously, uh, like uh, people who work for CNN, uh, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. I mean, this whole kind of uh, lingo that was established by Israel and by APAC in this country in how they can, what can they refer to, what can they uh, use as words. Right, right. Is now, and hopefully, is uh, changing. And and so um, we're going to go to another interview, Jess, which, which is an interview with uh, Zena uh, Ashrawi Hutchinson, uh, a Palestinian-American activist, and actually she was a DNC delegate right. uh, from Virginia. But before that, and that's, we'll kind of go to her interview, I wanted to play this video clip by Secretary Blinken. Uh, uh, you Outrageous. Know, uh, he had a, I guess, a Zoom call or, in, uh, or talk with Representative Ilhan Omar, who asked him uh, where Palestinians can seek justice if the U.S. won't support, 
like an ICC investigation. And Blinken's response was from Israel and the United States because they are democracies. Oh my God, it's so insulting, Jamal. It's so insulting to hear the Secretary of State disrespect a congresswoman like Ilhan Omar and disrespect the reality of, of the ground on the ground for Palestinians and uh, the fact that the United States would reject the ICC, which the rest of the world, I mean, the only two countries that reject the ICC are the United States and the Israeli, you know, apartheid regime. They're the only ones that will reject this international call to bring justice to the war crimes that the Israelis have been engaged in for so many decades now. And, you know, this is part of the larger picture that Secretary Blinken it seems more like a mouthpiece for the Israeli prime minister's office and the Israeli government than he is acting on behalf of what is the strategic best interest of the United States. And I would argue that the strategic best interest of the United States is not mimicking Israeli uh, talking points. So there is a move, Jamal. Unfortunately, we have to be honest about this, right? There are Palestinians in the United States who are kind of on board with, uh, uh, you know, Secretary Blinken, unfortunately. And uh, we have to look at that. I mean, we, we've talked about this over the years, and it's a very sad and unfortunate reality that we have to take on. So let's watch uh, Secretary Blinken's uh, discussion or talk with uh, Representative Ilhan Omar. It's not really a discussion. And, but, and yeah. then we'll go to uh, our interview with Zena Ashrawi Hutchinson. Mr. Secretary, I, I do understand that point. I'm asking what mechanism do you think is, is available to them? I, I believe that we have, uh, whether it's the United States or Israel, we both have uh, the mechanisms to um, make, make sure that there is accountability uh, in, uh, in, in any situations where there are concerns about um, uh, the use of force uh, and uh, human rights. Uh, Etc. I believe that both of our democracies have that uh, have that capacity, and we've demonstrated it, and uh, we'll need to continue to demonstrate it going forward. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has met with a group of Palestinian Americans, who he labeled as leaders, in a tweet on June 5th. No names were officially announced, and neither was the meeting made public. A statement by more than 500 Palestinian Americans opposed the meeting, considering the closed-door gathering an attempt to circumvent grassroots leaders and to divide the Palestinian American community. Zena Ashrawi Hutchinson, a Palestinian American activist and DNC delegate from Virginia, is one of the signatories on the petition. Welcome to Arab Talk, Zena. Thank you, Jamal. It's my pleasure to be here. So. Why did you uh, denounce Blinken's meeting? Well, first of all, um, community leaders did not know anything about this meeting until the last second. Um, I'm going to start with this. Us Palestinians, not just in the United States, but on the ground in Palestine, have mobilized from the grassroots civil society. All of us have mobilized to speak with one voice um, and to speak with agency on our cause and to take back the reins of our issues. So when we have a group of uh, people meeting behind the scenes to discuss issues that pertain to all of us, 
without prior knowledge, without discussions, that's what caused the main issues in the first place, like Oslo, like the status quo from before. And for us here in America, the grassroots in particular decided that it is unacceptable once we found out. It is unacceptable for anybody to meet with the State Department. Particularly now, the blood of Palestinians in Gaza haven't dried yet. The $735 billion million that has been pr proposed while the as the bombing was still happening almost essentially and nobody said anything about it from the americans or the israelis and then you have these group of people meeting behind closed doors to discuss and talk about these things what we stress in the grassroots here in the united states and also in palestine is unity unity behind the palestinian cause unity behind the palestinian voice unity behind the agency of our representation uh, for a long time there was a hold uh, on dissemination of information behind like i said behind the scenes conversation and let the catastrophic illegitimate deals um we we won't let that happen anymore there's there's uh the streets are talking and uh politicians need to start listening quite frankly how did you find out about this meeting and did you reach out to any of the participants so we found out by by uh, uh, somebody who participated sent a quick tweet, or sorry, a quick text message the night before, really late at night. Uh, a few a few of us mobilized uh, to tell them, you know, we're boycotting this meeting. You should not be attending this meeting the next morning at ten thirty. They refused. So you know, the grassroots we mobilized and we wrote the statement, um, and it's you know speaks for itself. I think it's important for the State Department to understand that they cannot, they can no longer divide the Palestinian narrative. They can no longer pick and choose whom they speak to and what voices they listen to. Because the voices that are speaking are speaking in unison at this point. That unless there is serious sanctions and unless there is re serious accountability, we won't really discuss anything uh, further. Um, so we found out really in secrecy, we told them that we were going to have a statement to rebut the situation. They still went ahead with the meeting, so we released the statement. I don't know if you saw this uh, recent video, uh, which became viral on social media. Uh, Representative Ilhan Omar asked uh, the Secretary of State uh, um, where Palestinians can seek justice if the U.S. won't support ICC investigations. And Blinken's response was from Israel and the U.S. because they are democracies. Any thoughts on this? I mean, it's absurd. Uh, I don't know if they're trying to fool themselves or fool everybody around them, but it's, I mean, everybody sees the legitimacy of moderation uh, that the United States or, or legal action that the United States has taken. They've blocked, uh, even they blocked ceasefire statements. They've successive administrations. We're not just talking about one. Um, not just uh, blocked resolutions recently on the ceasefire, resolutions condemning Israel's war crimes over time, even denouncing anything that has to do with asking for human rights of the Palestinian people. The U.S. Have, has always and continuously been the main force behind blocking these efforts internationally. Um, the previous administration sanctioned uh, judges. So we're not under any illusion that this administration or any previous administration has the interests of the Palestinian people at heart, uh, which is why you know we, we are commending the ICC for taking the next steps into investigating Israel um, and the atrocities that has, have been committed, not just recently, but over time. This is the, the latest from the ICC. So I think it's absolutely absurd. And I think now that people have access to information and know exactly what is happening, um, there this ruse of a peace process and moderating them being the moderator is completely laughable. 
So you were part, of course, of the Palestinian-American delegates uh, who attended the virtual uh, Democratic National Party's meeting uh, to draft its platform. Uh, you came away, uh, the group largely disappointed. Uh, short, shortly after that, I've actually had a conversation with someone you know very well, Huwaid Arraf, yes. and we discussed on, on this very show what happened. So when Secretary Blinken and President Biden keep repeating the statement, Israel has the right to defend itself, disregarding Palestinian suffering, uh, the brutal occupation and apartheid conditions uh, they live under, is this a result of the Democratic Party really blind support of, uh, to Israel? I mean, is there, are we seeing any change or it's just same old, same old, and they're just gonna keep repeating the same old stuff? Well, I mean, we see that they are repeating the same old stuff. The difference is now they're being held accountable and being called out for doing it. Uh, when we were the delegates, there's an amazing group of Palestinian delegates and allies who worked tirelessly to pressure the Biden campaign at the time, um, as well as the DNC, to take a firm stand on the most basics of human rights and rights of the Palestinian people, like putting equity or equality in the, in the uh, and I'm sure you discussed this, equity or equality in, in the platform, like uh, discussing the ethnic cleansing of Jerusalem in the most mundane terms, not even in any controversial issues. Everything was blocked. And uh, that is, they keep talking about policy versus politics. American policy and politics have not changed. What is changing is the grassroots are speaking up, people are being held accountable, and those of us who work on the ground do realize that our influence is growing not just because we speak up, but because we attend um, uh, and we question uh, the, the candidates before they become elected officials in order for us to hold them accountable later. For example, recently here in Virginia, we and in fact today are the primaries, so people are voting as I'm speaking, uh, we had a people's debate. And one of the questions that I asked the lieutenant governor, or the governors, uh, the people running for governor is, do you support the boycott divestment sanction movement? Um, and everybody was stunned that that question was even asked. Even before I asked the question, people were like, oh, you need to be careful. We shouldn't ask this. This would go. And to me, this is a very simple question to ask. So breaking these barriers of taboo questions um, and engaging with those who before they become elected, holding them accountable after they become elected, and then showing that the, the, street, the streets are speaking, and it's not just the Palestinians. We have allies from all the movements around us because Palestine is no longer an isolated issue. It's no longer a foreign policy issue that people can you know, push to the side and say we don't have to deal with it. This is something that people now understand. They are here in the United States. They're paying for, they're responsible for, and they can do something about it. So while the old guard, if you will, are still there and doing the exact same thing, they're up against a big, massive movement that is coming directly in their path. Hold them up. Well, I think this is very important. I mean, we've talked about Secretary Blinken, and I think they're just towing the line, and, and President Biden. But we've seen a shift in Congress, yes. not maybe not enough. I mean, you have Ilhan Omar, you have Rashida Tlaib, you have Jamal Bowman, you have new faces, newcomers, uh, uh, Representative McCollum introducing a bill. Yes. Um, I mean, do you feel that the U.S. public opinion shifting on Palestine? Absolutely, 100%. 
Um, I think it, it, with bills like 2590 from uh, the amazing Betty McCollum um, and support the, the progressives in Congress, they are laying the groundwork for what's to come. And we need that support. And we understand that it takes courage. We understand that we are going against the grain, if you will. We understand that we are up against propaganda machines. We're up against a massive lobby, if the strongest, if not one of the strongest. We are um, um, up against decades of oppression and decades of propaganda that's been entrenched in American in the American psyche and American media. Um, to the point where people are terrified to even say Palestine, whereas now uh, slowly the narrative is changing in the United States. Um, and with the presence of these incredible progressives in Congress, uh, I think definitely momentum and uh, uh, public opinion is shifting, but I'm, it's not enough. And I'm urging everybody to realize that it may take a little bit of courage to start, but once you see the flood of support that people get when you stand up for truth and justice, um, and Palestinian liberation, it is freeing because you're not beholden, really. You're not stained by supporting apartheid and ethnic cleansing. And I think it's becoming more and more apparent. Um, I mean, talking about right now, current events, like talking about Sheikh Jarrah and, and Silwan and Lifta and all of these places in Palestine that are currently being ethnically cleansed, people are just realizing this, but this has been going on for such a long time. Um, while we commend everybody for speaking up, this is policy. Um, ethnic cleansing is policy. So in order for us to combat that policy, that shift in Congress, not just in the grassroots, needs to happen. And I see it happening, and I'm very proud of it. It's, it's, uh, it's fabulous to see. In fact, for organizing around 2590 is such a, a, um, a brilliant way to do it, because it's not just advocacy for Palestinian rights. Um, it's advocacy, it's, it's education. When people ask us, what do you mean they... Uh, tear down Palestinian homes. And then we talk about, you know, the different uh, villages that have been torn down and parks being built on those villages, like Canada Park over um, Amwes and Yalu. These are such important conversations that have gone unspoken for such a long time and hidden because of the control over the media that now people can't stand blindly with Israel without feeling like they are condemning uh, ethnic cleansing, apartheid, and settler colonialism, period. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, ethnic cleansing uh, is ongoing in, I should mention, in the city of your birth, uh, Jerusalem, and also my city of my birth. Um, there is a definitely a major uh, grassroots uh, global outcry. I don't see that impact still moving the administration. I mean, from what I've heard, when 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 we're uh, you know when the uh, Biden administration want to send uh, seven hundred plus million dollars to Israel, when um, you have a senator going to Israel and saying that uh, Israel is ready to ask for uh, an additional billion dollars uh, to replenish its. Uh, military hardware and bombs and missiles that it dropped on, on Gaza. What gives, really, what gives? I think for us, primarily, we need to be, uh, we need to keep demanding and speaking up, but we also need to realize that this is not going to happen over time, ov uh, overnight. Um, this is going to take time, um, but it's building. And so while we may feel like it needs to happen tomorrow, and it should, I mean, all of us agree that this needs to end right now, yesterday, uh, 
the policy of the United States is not going to change overnight. Um, and public opinion on everything is not going to change overnight. So what we need to do is keep building on the progressive uh, momentum, keep building on the knowledge that people now have uh, and the access that people now have. And to, to tug on people's uh, 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 moral compass, the, the moral value of, of what they see is important to them as human beings, uh, not just politics. Uh, things like, you know, statements like uh, putting Hamas as as a as a uh, as a divider, essentially between the Palestinian people and Israel. This is a, a, a way to to divide the people and kind of change the narrative completely from the, the unity that the Palestinian people have had and the the apparent shift in public opinion and and approach to well then they're they're terrorists. The problem with that is that neither Israel nor the, nor the United States have the right to decide Palestinians if if who are the civilians and who aren't. Every single Palestinian has the right to resist. Period. Full stop. So the change that is happening is not going to happen overnight, but conversations need to keep happening. And like I said, with 2590 and other uh, conversations and now activists rising up and people like us in the, in the DNC, not sitting back and being OK with status quo, challenging these behind the scenes meetings that are taking our narrative away from us, from the people on the ground in Palestine who are speaking out and telling us in unison stand together for our cause because we need to stay together uh, is extremely important. Um, and, and quickly to talk about the ethnic cleansing of Jerusalem, it is what we see on the ground. There are like three important issues. It's not just the ethnic cleansing um, uh, of Jerusalem in and of itself. This is a policy. This is what Israel is literally built on, the demolition of villages and homes and towns and building these uh, completely foreign entities on top of our history and our narrative. Um, this is not new. This is fact. Uh, the second thing is the ethnic cleansing is not just on the ground. It is also all kinds of ethnic cleansing on social media, the erasure of our history, um, the, the creation of new narratives that never really existed. Uh, the dismantlement of them and normalizing terminology like evictions, um, you know, or like I said, terrorism when, when it comes to counter, uh, you know, uh, violence versus violence. There is no violence versus violence. This is an oppressor against an oppressed. This is a captive people under a, a brutal blockade for 14 years plus who are facing indiscriminate bombardment by the most powerful country, one of the most powerful countries in the world with support of one of the most powerful countries in the world. And lastly, these are war crimes. We're not talking about people going to the grocery store and buying tissues or something. These are war crimes that are being committed against a defenseless people that have been calling out for the international community and the United States to take a firm stand, to, to have a moral uh, compass, to really see Israel for what it's been for what it is a settler colonialist regime an apartheid regime um and so now that this is all being spoken up about with the, with TikTok with Instagram with even with the censorship mind you even with the ethnic cleansing with the with the complete denial of our attempts um they're being spoken up about and so while not tomorrow i am I'm a firm believer that if these guys don't take it into upon themselves, we will. Well, actually, uh, you've men mentioned the censorship and the social media. Um, I I'm actually having a conversation right after you with uh, Gillian York from the Electronic Frontier Foundation to talk about this. Uh, but, uh, you know, shifting public opinion comes with shifting also the narrative. 
through the media. Yes. And, and the Palestinians recently were happy to see that the New York Times, for the f very first time, putting the faces of Palestinian children on its fr front page and, of course, received a lot of critic. But m my question is, why now? I mean, all these years, all what happened throughout these decades of ethnic cleansing, of the killing of children, of, of home demolitions, and then this is the first time that the New York Times, of course, did that after the Israeli Haaretz newspaper uh, published uh, these. Uh, I mean, do you feel, is there a shift also in the media, or is it kind of like a, a token after all this pressure, uh, let's humanize Palestinians for a change? I would like to think there's a shift. I think it's a minimal shift in the media, and we have to recognize that. I mean, putting the faces of dead Palestinian children on the front page of the New York Times is a huge step. But then you read the other articles that are written and all over, and not just written, spoken on, on mainstream media there's still the same thing. They still dehumanize Palestinians and blame us for our own death. So uh, there's a very, very slight shift, but even that shift is kind of absurd. Do you know what, if, if I'm making any sense? The fact that it's, it, and people are speaking up against putting Palestinian children who are dead on the front pages. I mean, it's, it's, there is, we are touching people and there's clearly momentum. The Israeli propaganda machine is afraid. Um, that said, I think that has a long way to go. And the media has realized that part of the reason why they do have to start reporting on the actual truth that's happening on the ground is because people are circumventing them. And pretty soon they'll be obsolete and shows like yours, uh, Mr. Jamal, will become the voice and have become the voice that people will listen to to get the truth. Because we now realize from watching social media, those kids and, and youth on the ground in Palestine and adults, um, speaking up honestly, unabashed, truthfully about settler colonialism and the impact it's having, not just on the ground there, but on all of us. This is a 73-year-old systemic oppression um, that has gone on. The ethnic cleansing is also, I mean, another thing with the, with the death and the, and the destruction and ethnic cleansing and all of it, it's not just on the ground in Palestine, you see. The trauma from 73 years ago comes with us wherever we go, uh, whether we are exiled, whether we become refugees, whether it's it's all part of it. So I think the movement now is because Palestinians in the United States and elsewhere and our allies, I have to say, we have a, a brilliant, brilliant um, allies who support us and, and walk be beside us. Um, because we have taken the reins from the elected officials, because we have really spoken up and stopped these behind the scenes conversations that have uh, stopped and tried to divide us for such a long time. The shift is happening um, and uh, they're, they're not going to have much of a choice but to come come with us. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's people like me, for example, and like you. Uh, we are here and we are speaking up. I, the ethnic cleansing, for example, I was exiled in 2009. And I've been speaking more and more about this because I think it's important for people to realize that ethnic cleansing right now in Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan is very, very real. They're actually demolishing, I think they said 150 homes. Today it was announced, or Palestinian homes, they have to demolish them by themselves or the municipality or pay the municipality to do it. I mean, that's cruelty and dehumanization. But then you also look at the fact that people like us, I came to the United States to study. I did not leave my home. I just came as a student. I didn't have an American passport. I went back to Palestine to visit my family after a certain, you know, when my child was born. 
did all the protocols, got the visa on my Israeli travel document that I was issued to go home. Um, and when I you got shouldn't there, be, You shouldn't be forced to obtain a visa to return to your birthplace, but anyway. Exactly, and we're forced to do it. We're humiliated to do it. If you don't do it, you won't go, you, they won't let you in. So we still were humiliated to walk into the embassy and ask for a visa to return to my birthplace where my parents still live. Um, after a hassle, they gave me my visa. I go home at the airport. They, they keep me and my child, who was 10 months old at the time, uh, for six hours, my father is still waiting outside. And when they finally let us go after so much pressure, they told me I had two weeks to, re- to, to go to the um, Ministry of Interior and change my documents or do whatever it is that I needed to do. And when I went and tried to uh, uh, talk to them and tell them, you know, this is my home, you can't take my ID away, blah, blah, blah. They gave me a travel document. Um, and on the travel document, they said that my nationality was undefined. This, this is ethnic cleansing. This is not just a paper. This is denial of my existence as a Palestinian. Um, and then after they did this, when I left, they took my ID. And now, I, for a year, actually, I stayed in the United States on a green card, did not have any other documentation to travel or do go home if I needed to. Um, and so now I'm an American. My children and my husband are Palestinian with West Bank ID numbers. And I am an American, born and raised in Palestine. (laughs) So, I mean, the absurdity of it is laughable, but it's also extremely painful and systematic and very well studied. Um, Our erasure is ingrained in the political system there, but it's also ingrained in the political system here. And so to change that, we have to change hearts and minds, but we also have to change policy. Um, And we are working on that on every level. But the beauty of this movement, Jamal, um, and the, the, the pride I have in being a minute part in it is the unity and the selflessness and the pure solidarity um, and the authenticity of the fight uh, that has taken over, which motivates everybody around us, is just breathtaking. So um, I see it. I see the movement happening. My heart still aches every day when I see the news back home. Um, but we're not stopping. We won't stop fighting for this, whether on the ground or here. This is this is our right. Liberation is our right. It's not a gift, like I said in in our um, in one of my statements. And um, we don't ask for permission to end apartheid. We demand it, and we don't ask for permission to free Palestine. We demand it, and we will continue. Zena Ashrawi Hutchinson, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you so much, Jamal. It's my pleasure. That's the voice and the face of Zaina Ashrawi Hutchinson, DNC representative from Virginia. And Jamal, I can't agree with her more. Why should uh, why, why should we support the efforts of the State Department uh, right now and their so-called efforts to ex- simply just extend the colonial occupation of historic Palestine right now? Uh, I am on board with everything she said. I'm on board with the petition. And let me ask you a question. Do you think it's getting any play in the mainstream media? No, not really. I mean, listen, uh, if you look at the, the meeting itself, and I understand why people were upset, uh, there was a group of Palestinians, as, as you've mentioned, they've met with the, with the secretary. Uh, the secretary put a tweet 
last week saying, I've met with Palestinian leaders without putting leaders between quotes. So people were surprised without naming. Without naming the were, leaders. Who were these leaders are and without... Who selected the Without anyone actually knowing anything about the agenda, what they were going to be discussing. And it came at the heels, on the heels of of, uh, just just, uh, the United States, uh, you know, saying that it's going to give Israel over $700 million. And then also the the Israelis are, are ready to submit a request for an additional billion dollars to replenish their... Missile, uh, missiles, I guess, they used and, and, and ammunition they used on Gaza. So, so the timing of the meeting was horrible. The optics of the meetings uh, were horrible. And, and then, um, you know, people were questioning this. And so my understanding is a group of four women, one of them is Zain Ashrawi Hutchinson, they uh, started this campaign in which uh, uh, more than 500 Palestinian Americans uh, telling to people, hey, hold on, don't meet. I mean, let's discuss it. I guess they uh, didn't uh, adhere to this uh, campaign and, and they've met. And we have yet to know all the full details. We've got some information here and there of what transpired. But my understanding also is after the meeting, the uh, secretary met also with pro-Israel groups, uh, representatives of uh, different organizations, and I'm sure under the umbrella of APAC. So, so the whole idea is for the Secretary of State, I mean, this is at a time when they have been repeating time and time again that we are 100% behind Israel. Israel can do no wrong. Israel is a democracy. Israel has the right to defend itself. To sit down and say, well, I've met with Palestinian leaders. Yeah, it's so insulting. I mean, about what? Yeah, about what? Well, there's, there's many things that are wrong with that articulation. First of all, as you said, Jamal, and I can't agree with you more, who, for Secretary Blinken to say that without identifying the leaders means that there's something to hide. Without talking transparently about what they spoke about and, you know, the details of how they were selected, it again, the lack of transparency suggests that these uh, tactics that the State Department and Blinken and the Biden administration are doing are simply to extend the Israeli colonial project and to go along with Israeli Hasbara. The majority of Palestinians in this country do not support the U.S. policy of the two-state solution, the fake two-state solution, and they certainly don't support the idea of continuing to give the Israelis billions of dollars every year to kill and to ethnically cleanse Palestinians. But, you know, Jamal, as I said, the fact that these these individuals were not named and you and I know who these people are. We've, well, we've, it's now it's now public. I mean, yeah. it just it just took everyone by surprise. And, and a few of them had said earlier, yeah, I, we were part of this meeting. But again, you know, when you have a meeting, an important meeting between the Palestinian community and the secretary of state, you have to have preparation, you have to have an agenda, you have to have talking points, you have to to be inclusive. I mean, I don't want to, you see, I don't want us to kind of like sidetrack and go after these people, what, you know, you know, like who, who were they, what did they represent and, and, and all of this. But the whole idea of having a meeting without a, just the community, knowing all about it in advance and, and providing input. Or, That's my or point. That's the point, Jamal. It's just ludicrous when at the end of the day, I mean, 
The Secretary of State is going to say, Israel has the right to defend itself. Let's talk about this and that and not, and not really address the real issues. Well, let's, and, and the reality is, Jamal, this does not address the root issues of the ethnic cleansing and the clone, Israeli colonial project against Palestine. And that's really the issue. They're holding on to the fiction of the Israeli view of the two-state solution, was, which is essentially the Oslo agreements that have been whittled down to more Israeli settlers, more colonial expansion, more domination and control of Palestinian land, which has, you know, been stolen, and more control and domination of the natural resources and the people. This is not something that Palestinians would ever agree to. So for him to say that he met with Palestinian leaders and the way in which he did it is something, is is nothing more than just a sideshow to show that the Biden administration is firmly behind the Israeli uh, Hasbara machine. But I'll tell you, Jamal, not all members of Congress are on board with this. And that's some of the shift that we're seeing. We're seeing the grassroots in the Democratic Party. We're seeing Congress, men and women, and even some senators who are not on board with this Israeli plan, with the American-Israeli coordination on this. And certainly, we're beginning to hear more about how it is not in the U.S. strategic interest to continue to support the Israeli apartheid regime in the way it has been for so many decades. Well, you're absolutely right, Jess. And, uh, you know, what um, I started by saying that really Palestinians now are reclaiming their narrative. And that's but why people we, have to that, listen, though, Jamal. People, we well, have, well, people have why, to listen. That's why people are not paying attention to all these articles. They're not uh, paying attention to what APAC puts out there. And people watch what, when I just give you the, the recent example of what happened in Sheikh Jarrah, what's happening now in Silwan. Thousands of hundreds of thousands of people are retweeting those horrific pictures right. and images of the Israelis beating, beating Palestinian families, arresting children. They're not waiting to see those on CNN. They are not waiting to, to read a press release issued by the Secretary of State. They can see these in real time. And, and this is a grassroots sure. movement that people are seeing the injustice. Sure. And then therefore, people have to think very hard. And if Palestinians want to have a real strong voice, well, uh, maybe they should elect their own leaders in, in, in the United States. Well, uh, be, be, be not, open Jamal? to everyone. So when somebody goes and meets with the Secretary of the State or meets with President Biden, at least he or she has a constituency behind them. Well, that's exactly right, Jamal. But I, I think we need to go back to the point that uh, Jillian made in the point of of all of this. Yes, Palestinians are claiming their narrative. Palest- Pro-Palestine forces are able to tweet and retweet and post on Facebook. The problem is these social media organizations have the power to block, limit, edit, and take down the Palestinian narrative. And, you know, Jamal, here in the Bay Area, we and we don't have time to talk about it on this show, you know, Free Palestine graffiti is popping up all over the Bay Area. And the JCC has announced that if they see basically Free Palestine anywhere, that that's considered an anti-Semitic statement. So, Unbelievable. So this is where we're at, Jamal, that when you advocate for self-determination for Palestinians, it gets articulated as 
an anti-Semitic, you know, statement. This is why this is why uh, Max's uh, article on the weaponization of anti-Semitism in the Israeli Hasbara machine is so important, and we need to refer back to that as as much as possible. Well, you're not going to keep us silent. We're going to keep uh, talking about the truth. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download all our shows right there, and we will see you next week. We'll see you next week.